2006, February 1st. Today is Lecture 20 on Black Holes. It will be given in 1008 Evans Laboratory and will begin in just a moment. Get going today. What we've seen so far, this is the last of the basic lectures about the objects of stellar evolution. Tomorrow we have one more lecture in this series, which is going to be talking about just how do I actually justify observationally this story that I've spent the last week and a half spooling out on the structure and evolution of stars? How do we do that? That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. But today I wanted to devote the lecture to the last of the remnants of stellar evolution, the last bits of death and transfiguration in stars. We've seen that basically you can summarize the life cycle of a star from its birth until its end as one of these types of stellar remnants can be viewed as a tug of war between two opposing forces. Pressure trying to push the star apart and blow it into the cold vacuum of space and gravity that wants to crush it down into the smallest possible size. If a balance is achieved between pressure and gravity, we call that hydrostatic equilibrium. The star basically struggles, if you will, to put it in anthropomorphic terms, to maintain hydrostatic equilibrium throughout its history. Now, there's an additional aspect of this, which we call thermal equilibrium, which has to do with how the star goes about maintaining pressure in the face of sources of energy generation. But now we're talking about stellar remnants. There is no more stellar energy generation at all. All the energy involved is remnant heat. The sun will eventually become a white dwarf. It will cease to be a star and will become a cold, uh, first hot and then eventually cold stellar ember called a white dwarf. It will slowly but surely fade out because it no longer has any energy to make up for its losses. Neutron stars are also stellar remnants. They're the remnants when a star is less than about 18 times the mass of the sun, but bigger than eight. The star erupts as a supernova explosion, leaving behind this neutron-rich core. This neutron-rich core collapses under its own weight until finally neutron degeneracy pressure takes over and pressure is able to hold off gravity and it slowly loses energy just by leaking whatever heat it has out. A neutron star is the size of a city, but the mass of a star. In both of those remnants, the white dwarf and the neutron star, the final battle between pressure and gravity is won by pressure. Pressure is able to, at the very last, find some form of pressure, in this case a degeneracy pressure, electrons in the case of white dwarfs, neutrons in the case of neutron stars, to be able to hold off, the, the, hold off gravity, and it stabilizes essentially forever. But what happens if that battle is lost to gravity. And that's what today's topic is, black holes. A black hole is a totally collapsed object. It's an object in which gravity has won the final victory, pressure can no longer hold off the collapse, and the object collapses to, in classical terms, zero size and infinite, radi and infinite density. It's an object whose gravity is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape from it, and essentially is black. Now, these objects are actually predicted by the theory of general relativity, which is Einstein's theory of gravity, which, in fact, is our modern theory of gravity, which replaces the familiar gravitational theory of Newton. We're going to talk not too much about general relativity today. I'm going to forestall talking about that until we talk about the universe and cosmology, at which point we'll introduce relativity and modern gravity theory, because it's a bit more relevant there. We're going to introduce the two proper, the property of a, of a black hole, namely its Schwarzschild radius, which defines the size of its so-called event horizon. And we'll see why it's called an event horizon, not the size or the surface of a black hole. Black holes don't have surfaces. Now, if things are completely black, they emit no light, nor do they reflect light, how do we find them? And the answer turns out to be that we find them by their gravity. In a stellar context, in the context of stellar mass black holes, 
These things are going to manifest themselves primarily as a class of objects known as X-ray binary stars. We see them by the effects of their prodigious gravity upon the nearby companions in a binary system. Finally, we've been ta- we will have talked about black holes as a classical phenomenon, but in fact, if you bring into, into account the effects of quantum mechanics, the way the universe works at the realm of the very small, at the subatomic and atomic level, we find that black holes, in fact, are not completely black. They do, in fact, emit tiny amounts of radiation, which is referred to as Hawking radiation in honor of physicist Stephen Hawking, who first worked out the properties of this radiation. This means that black holes slowly, very, very slowly, evaporate over time. They lose their matter and eventually go away. The consequences of this will become more interesting when we get to talk about the science of the universe itself, cosmology. So today we're going to meet the craziest and most outrageous members of the the legacy of Albert Einstein, black holes. As I said before in my opening comments, that the the lifetime of a star can be seen as a continuous tug of war between pressure and gravity. If a star is more massive on the main sequence than about 18 times the mass of the sun, it goes through all those cycles of events that we saw on Friday and Monday through a supernova explosion, leaving behind a collapsing iron-nickel core, which hopefully would become a neutron star. The problem is, if the mass of that core is bigger than about two to three times the mass of the sun, we don't know exactly what this mass limit is, unlike the case of the Chandrasekhar limit, which we can compute for electron degeneracy as 1.44 solar masses. For neutron degeneracy, it's a lot harder to compute the analog of the Chandrasekhar mass because the, the physics of materials at that kind of density where the strong nuclear force plays a role, we don't have a complete theory of the strong nuclear force that we're sure enough about what the properties of that material are. And so we really don't know what that maximum mass is. But the estimates nowadays put it between two and three times the mass of the sun. If the mass exceeds this two to three times the mass of the sun limit, Neutron degeneracy pressure no longer is sufficient to hold off gravity. No matter how close you push that neutron material together, even if you push it into some very exotic states of matter, like quark matter states and funky stuff like that, you're never going to get enough pressure to equal gravity. You never achieve hydrostatic equilibrium. Gravity always wins and the object collapses. This collapse basically proceeds all the way to its logical mathematical limit. The star basically falls in upon itself completely, crushing itself down or approaching as well as it can zero size. An object of zero size has zero volume and therefore infinite density for a given mass. An object which has an infinity in it is called mathematically a singularity. So classically speaking, meaning using the classical physics of Newton and even Einstein, which Einstein is classical physics, doesn't use quantum mechanics, the formation of a singularity becomes inevitable. Such an object, when it's crushed into zero's radius and infinite density, the singularity becomes the center of an object known as a black hole. Now what a black hole is, is the ultimate and extreme objects. It's an object whose gravity is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape from it. The infalling matter that falls into a black hole continues into that central singularity where it is crushed, ripped up by tremendous tides. The difference of gravity force between your feet and your head would be enough to rip you into spaghetti, and then whatever pieces are there are going to get stuffed. Every single one of them, no longer resembling a person, are going to get crushed into infinite density in that singularity. A way of looking at it classically is to say that the escape velocity from this object exceeds the speed of light. 
And since classical relativity tells us that nothing can travel faster than light, and even light only travels at the speed of light, nothing gets out of this object once it forms. Once you get close enough that your escape speed exceeds the speed of light, you are now going, your matter is going to become part of the matter of this object. There's simply nothing you can do to get out. Furthermore, there's no way to signal your fate to the outside universe because the way we communicate with the outside universe is by light. And if light can't get out, no one knows what happened to you. In a black hole, nobody can hear you scream. Black holes are black for us. The reason we call them this is as follows. First of all, they are truly black. They do not emit light, nor do they reflect light. If I was standing a safe distance away from a black hole and shown a flashlight beam down it, those photons would simply get sucked in by the gravity and add their mass energy to the mass of the black hole. They're whole because nothing ever that enters them ever gets out. I throw in stars, I throw in people, I throw in rocks, trees, subatomic particles and photons, it doesn't matter. They all go down the hole. They add their matter and energy to the total mass of the black hole. The black hole simply gets larger. They are a continuous, voracious, gravitational beast. So these black holes are so named because, again, they neither emit nor reflect light of any form. No particles, nothing in the classical sense. And they're a hole in the sense that once you get into them, you can't get back out. This name, black hole, was coined in 1964 by physicist John Wheeler. Now we can define what is the critical point. How close is too close to the singularity? Black holes don't have surfaces. I, I can't draw them as if they're a single black billiard ball. That's the way we usually sort of try to think about them. But you can't think of them that way because the, the matter of the black hole isn't inside some surface. It's all the way down in zero size. It's down in that singularity in the center. But I can define how close is too close to the black hole. We call that the Schwarzschild radius. Basically, the Schwarzschild radius is defined as follows. Light cannot escape from a black hole if it comes from a radius which is less than the Schwarzschild radius. The Schwarzschild radius is defined as r sub s. It's 2 times the gravity constant times the mass of the black hole divided by the speed of light squared. Now, it turns out there's an interesting accident here. You can actually derive the Schwarzschild radius from classical Newtonian gravity by simply asking, what is the size of an object whose escape velocity is the speed of light? This was done in the year 1795 by the mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace. And he de described a series of objects in his book he called core obscure, dark objects. Sometimes people called them dark stars. But in fact, this is purely an accident because the gravity that happens near a very strong singularity does not behave according to Newton's laws of gravity. It behaves by a very different set of laws which were formulated by Albert Einstein in the year 1915, which we call the general theory of relativity. Newtonian gravity is simply the weak gravity long distance limit of a much more general picture of how gravity actually works. We call it the Schwarzschild radius because it was derived first by a young German physicist by the name of Karl Schwarzschild. He did it in 1916, one year after Einstein published his formulas for general relativity, his, his, what he called the Einstein field equations. This is mathematics so difficult that Arthur Eddington, the scientist who is often, we've mentioned a few times, he was behind white dwarfs and a lot of stellar evolution theory, was approached shortly after Einstein's theory of general relativity was confirmed in an observation of bending of starlight around the sun during an eclipse. A 
reporter from a British newspaper approached Sir Arthur Eddington and says, is it true that there are only three people in the world who understand relativity? And Eddington got quiet for a minute, and the reporter said, Sir Eddington, Sir Arthur, did you not understand my question? He says, oh, yes, young man, I understood your question. I just can't think who the other two are. <laughs> in fact, there are a lot more than three people who understand relativity, and I'm not even sure myself. What's interesting about the Schwarzschild, there's two, one other piece of this thing is, unfortunately, there's a bit of a tragedy behind this. Carl Schwarzschild did his solution to the mathematics of it while he was bored. He was in the German army. 1916 was during World War I. He was on the Russian front out in the, out in the east. He did the mathematics in order to do this while he was bored in the trenches of the Russian front. Sadly, Carl Schwarzschild did not live very long after sending this paper to his teacher Einstein. He died not of combat, but of disease. World War II also claimed a number of other people, including the discoverer of the neutron. It was this sort of thing that you saw that reminds you that wars of the scale of World War I are obscenities, and these are some of the obscene things that occur. As people of tremendous pr promise are lost to the world. What could Carl Schwarzschild have done otherwise? The Schwarzschild radius depends upon only one variable, the mass. Doesn't know about anything else. Doesn't care about the composition, doesn't care about the shape, nothing. It only matters how much matter is inside, that, is inside that radius. It's also a very small radius. For If I put in the mass of one mass of the sun, the Schwarzschild radius for a black hole of the mass of the sun is three kilometers. That's barely the size of this campus. The Schwarzschild radius for the Earth. I can define the Schwarzschild radius for the Earth. It's really small. If I was to somehow contrive to make the Earth into a black hole, it would be smaller than this nickel. It would be approximately one centimeter across. Any object can become a black hole, provided I can get all of its matter inside the Schwarzschild radius. Getting all of its matter inside the Schwarzschild radius, however, is no mean feat. It turns out one of the ways you can do that is build a stellar remnant core above two or three times the mass of the sun. Below that, other pressure forces come into play to stop the collapse that we understand. So I can't easily make a one solar mass black hole or an earth mass black hole. Not by conventional means, but stellar evolution theory tells me that I can probably make them with stars whose initial mass is above 18 times the mass of the sun. It's a likely outcome of stellar evolution. To get this on some kind of perspective of scale, to show you just how close you get with stellar evolution, this is a cartoon I showed yesterday comparing a one and a half solar mass neutron star, which will have a radius of about 10 kilometers, to the island of Manhattan. Manhattan's just a little bit larger in length than the diameter of this neutron star. If I could somehow contrive to make that neutron star a 1.5 solar mass black hole, its radius would now not be 10 kilometers, but four and a half kilometers. The escape speed from the surface of this neutron star is about 70% the speed of light. The escape speed from exactly the Schwarzschild radius, which is not the surface of the black hole, it's just simply the point of no return, is the speed of light. So a neutron star is pretty darn close to a black hole already. These are all to scale. So you only have to tip a neutron star just so far before it tips over into becoming a black hole. That tipping point, again, we don't know the exact number. It seems to be between two and three times the mass of the sun. The way we can test it is either come up with better nuclear theory, which tells us how the matter inside of a neutron star behaves, or go out and observe enough neutron stars and binary stars and see if we just simply stop seeing neutron stars above a certain mass. And that's, in fact, what people have tried to do. It's still somewhat debatable whether two solar mass neutron stars have been observed yet or not. 
keep that one in mind. This will be part of the test we'll use to search for real black holes in the universe. Now, what the Schwarzschild radius defines is not a solid surface. I can't stand on the um, surface of a black hole, even notionally. What the Schwarzschild radius is, is it's the point of no return. Below the Schwarzschild radius, anything that happens inside that Schwarzschild radius is invisible to the outside universe. I could be lighting off nuclear bombs at a half of the Schwarzschild radius. The outside universe will simply never know because nothing can get out there to tell you that nukes are going off every two seconds. Because light can't get out, particles can't get out, nothing can get out. Not even vibration. You have no idea that anything is going on inside that Schwarzschild radius. Furthermore, anything that travels from the outside and passes through the Schwarzschild radius on its way towards the singularity is trapped forever. The only way you could get out is either if A, you could contrive to go faster than the speed of light, or somewhat equivalently, it turns out, you could contrive to go backwards in time. You could reverse your trajectory. That's it. You can't get out otherwise. So what we define the Schwarzschild radius is not the surface of a black hole, it's the point of no return. As long as I stay outside the Schwarzschild radius, I'm fine. I'm part of the rest of the universe. I can communicate with it. It can communicate with me via light waves. I can wave to my buddies. They can wave back at me. And I can leave the vicinity of the black hole. But once I get inside the Schwarzschild radius, that's it. I will become part and parcel of the matter of that black hole, be shredded by the tides, and otherwise crushed infinite density. Now, the gravity around a black hole, the, the, the vision that we have of black holes are these voracious sucking beasts of gravity. Okay? There was a, a terrible Disney movie back when I was in high school called The Black Hole, which in which this ship comes by and studies this black hole, and it has to keep its engines running constantly to maintain its position, otherwise it will fall in. That's also been something which has been used by a couple of other science fiction films in which, I don't know, the Starship Enterprise or whatever visits a black hole. That's actually unnecessary. The gravity outside the Schwarzschild radius is pretty much the same as you would have for a star of that given mass. So for example, if I could somehow contrive to turn the sun into a black hole, I basically change the laws of physics briefly so the whole thing just shuts down, falls down the hole, and I get a one solar mass black hole at the center of the solar system, it would have a Schwarzschild radius of three and a half kilometers. As far as the Earth is concerned, other than the fact it would get dark and cold and generally kind of be bad, I'm 550 million kilometers away. I'm so many Schwarzschild radii away, it's ridiculous. The Earth would still orbit exactly the same as it does now, because as far as the Earth is concerned, there's one solar mass of stuff, one astronomical unit at the center, away at the center of its orbit. That hasn't changed. Remember, Newtonian gravity, which is the appropriate approximation in the, what we call the weak field limit of Einstein's relativity, only asks... How much matter is in there? It doesn't ask what shape it's in. It doesn't ask its density. Just how much. Right? It's G times M of sun times M of earth divided by radius of earth sun distance squared. Nowhere does it say mass density or mass composition or anything. It's just the mass. So if I turn the earth into a black hole, it would just get really dark, but the earth would continue to circle around that center of mass one year in its orbit. It's just that it would appear to be orbiting nothing because you couldn't see it. Now, as you get closer and closer to a black hole, the ability of a Newtonian gravity to properly approximate the behavior of gravity begins to break down a little bit. It turns out that if you got 
if you stay outside three times the Schwarzschild radius, I can set my object spacecraft person in a spacesuit into a circular orbit around the black hole and just orbit there forever, provided no drag force or anything comes by to interrupt my orbit. I can fire my rockets and leave. But at three times the Schwarzschild radius for a simple spherical non-rotating black hole, I can no longer define a stable closed orbit. I can't be an ellipse. I can't be a circle inside three R Schwarzschild. If I put my rocket ship down there, fired its engines, and got it into a circular orbit at three Schwarzschild radii, and then ran out of fuel, my orbit would slowly spiral in and eventually fall into the black hole. If I was at three and a half Schwarzschild radii, I'd be cool. If I got into a circular orbit, I'd stay in a circular orbit. But inside three, there are no stable closed orbits. So it becomes sort of the orbit of last recourse. You could eventually get out if you could fire your engines enough. You do have a finite escape speed, less than the speed of light, but you can't just simply coast. You'd have to fire your engines all the time. Where do things get crazy is at one and a half Schwarzschild radii, if I took out a laser pointer and fired it in a tangential direction with the black hole at my feet, those photons would go around the black hole and come back to me. And those photons would, in fact, orbit in a circle round and around and around. They wouldn't shine out into space. They would just get trapped in a ring. Closer than one and a half hour Schwarzschild, they would spiral in and fall in and be sucked into the hole. So life near a black hole is pretty darn weird. Let's just get a feel for how weird. Let's do a little thought experiment. We can't do this experiment for real. I would love to be able to take a trip to a black hole nearby. I think if astronomers did that, we'd be like, you know, we'd be like young boys around a pond. We'd start throwing rocks in just to see what would happen. It'd be really cool. Did you ever notice that? Water, small boys, rocks, just a combination made in heaven, man. I love it. I still throw rocks in ponds. Two observers. We've got a black hole here. I have two observers, Jack and Jill. Jack is in a spacesuit. He's falling into a black hole and he's carrying a laser beacon. Now Jack and Jill both took Astronomy 162. Jill comes to class, Jack does not. Jill knows to stay in an orbit well outside 3R Schwarzschild in her spaceship in a nice stable circular orbit and she's watching from inside the spaceship, keeping an eye on Jack as he's falling in. So Jack is out there, here, take the laser pointer, go down and check out the black hole. So Jack goes in. As long as he's outside 3R Schwarzschild, in fact, as long as he's outside the Schwarzschild radius, which I've drawn in blue here because, well, let's face it, it's just kind of hard to draw a black hole against a black background. So I'm going to put a little blue around the outside here just to show you where the event horizon is. Jack's now going to fire this laser beacon. The way they're going to communicate is with light rays because, you know, radio isn't so effective. Whatever. So it's from Jack's point of view. We get into a little he said, she said. This is what relativity is all about. Jack's falling down. He sees the ship getting further away because he's falling into the black hole. He's looking at his watch, and every second he flashes his laser pointer. His laser pointer is blue, and he flashes it back at Jill. Now, what he's thinking is Jill's sitting back there seeing the laser pointer. He, she should see a blue flash once every second. But in fact, Jill is seeing this light as it's clawing its way up out of the deep gravitational well surrounding the black hole. What she sees is first of all, each flash takes longer and longer to arrive. The reason being that according to Einstein's theory of relativity, their clocks are actually running at different rates because the curvature of space and time is greater closer to the black hole than further away. So each flash that she sees starts out at one second when they're closer together and their clocks are synchronized, but as they move closer and closer, his clock is actually moving slower, so she sees the pulses come three seconds apart, 
then five seconds apart, then 10 seconds, then 10 minutes, then 10 hours. Because his clock's running at a different rate than our clocks are here. This is not some made up bit of math. If you go further away from a, from a gravitational source, your clocks run at a slightly faster rate, slower when you're close, faster when you're far away. The Global Positioning Satellite Constellation orbiting about 12,000 kilometers or 20,000 kilometers above our head carries atomic clocks. Those clocks actually have to be detuned because they run at a different rate when they're on orbit station than they run on the launch pad. If they didn't, the GPS navigation system wouldn't work. So that's an observed fact of general relativity. The other is these photons have to claw their way up out of the gravitational field and they lose energy. As a blue photon loses energy, its wavelength gets redder. So what Jill sees as Jack falls down the hole is she sees the laser pulses take longer to arrive because his clock is ticking at a slower rate. And he sees the light shade from blue through green to red, finally out to infrared to microwaves to radio. So as Jack begins to approach the event horizon, as far as he's concerned, one, two, three, four, He's just click, he's clicking the laser button every second. But to the outside world, it's starting to look a little weird because light bends in the presence of strong gravitational fields. We even see light bending around the sun during solar eclipses. It's really subtle, but you can measure it. It's another confirmation of general relativity. Well, when you get close to a black hole, the bending becomes so extreme that it's like looking from the outside of a funhouse mirror out into the world. Jane sees the flashes coming about an hour apart. The flashes are so redshifted now, they're losing so much energy that a blue light photon is now radio wavelength, so she's not watching them with her eyes, but she's hung a satellite dish out to pick up the feeble signals. Furthermore, the flashes are getting fainter and fainter and fainter because it's just, there just isn't much going on here. So she sees Jack basically beginning to fade out and his clock running slower and slower and slower. If we look at the view of their sky, and I can compute this with a computer. This was done by a guy named Bob Nemiroff up at, up at uh, Michigan State University. Actually, he's not Michigan State. He's northern Michigan. Here's what Jill would see. She would see a blue f a flash coming from Jack somewhere here in the direction. She's out here at 1,000 Schwarzschild radii looking back at the black hole, and she looks in and says, well, Jack is somewhere down there, and I see his flash every hour or so because I get a radio pulse from his laser. Jack, on the other hand, is down at 10 Schwarzschild radii. He looks around, and he sees the light from the background stars bending kind of funny. These stars are in the wrong spot. This star was here. It's now up here. This star was here. This star was over here. Is now bent down there. He's kind of seeing it through a distorted window. For those of you who might recognize, that's uh, Betelgeuse and Rigel, and that's the constellation of Orion. There's, well, kind of... Well, yeah, Orion's been kind of messed up. So Jack would have the first intimations that something was wrong, especially this gigantic patch back here where there's no light. Finally, Jack just passes through the event horizon. Now, you don't see anything. You don't, like, hit a surface. You just pass through the event horizon. Jill basically sees one last laser flash maybe a month after, later, and that's it. The flash is extremely faint. It's really long radio wavelength. She's had to tune her satellite dish to the AM dial. And she's never going to see another flash because in the next second, Jack's inside the event horizon. His next laser flash isn't going to reach it. She basically says, well, that's all over. Time to go home. Jack, on the other hand, 
the spending of light becomes so extreme that the universe essentially vanishes when he crosses the event horizon. It becomes extremely weird. Now, before he gets the chance to say registering, like, dude, what's this all about? The gravitational tides shred him and stuff him into the singularity, crushing him to infinite density. So the basic conclusion of this is that life gets very weird near a black hole. There's a certain prediction of certain phenomena as you would generate and get close near the event horizon. Jill's conclusions, for as the outside observer is able to bring her conclusions home and report them to him, and what she says is that the powerful gravity around a black hole warps the space and time around it. It actually causes space-time to literally warp like a sheet with a weight hanging in it. Time appears to stand still right at the event horizon as seen by a distant observer. You expect that next flash, but the next flash never comes, as if Jack's watch and everything else just stopped. Now, Jack doesn't notice a thing. He sees his clock just still tick, 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 tick. It's just the problem between one tick and the next. He's inside the event horizon, and he gets an intimation that something really bad is about to happen. The second thing Jill notices is that time flows, as it always does, as seen by that, that, that observer, because Jack is still hitting that button just like he's supposed to. The light, furthermore, that she sees emerging from the black hole gets progressively redshifted. It gets gravitationally redshifted to longer and longer wavelengths. A blue light photon becomes first a red photon, then infrared, then microwave, then radio, then you know, AM radio. So her conclusions are basically fairly straightforward. She's actually learned something about the property of gravity in the presence of very strong gravitational fields as predicted by general relativity. Jack's conclusions are a little simpler. <laughs> Jack just looks back at the universe and says, black holes suck, dude. And that's about the last thing he says. Unfortunately, he says it's from inside the event horizon, so we only have to guess. Well, that's all well and good, and all the silliness about he said, she said, and relativity weirdness aside, let's get real. We want to talk about things we can really see in the universe. So can we actually find these black holes? It's all fun and good to talk about the properties these things might have, but do they actually exist? Well, let's get down to a practical issue. If a black hole is black, how the hell do you see it? Right? You can't shine light on it. It doesn't emit light. And the way we see everything in the universe, as the word, ex as the word implies, we see it because we sense light coming from it. It might be gamma rays. It might be radio waves. But we somehow detect photons coming from the object. The answer turns out to be that while a black hole is black, it neither emits nor reflects photons of any sort. It still has its mass. It still generates gravity. And that gravity will make itself known. Black holes, if you will, are kind of like the Cheshire cat in the Alice stories, right? It's the cat that sat in the tree and grinned until finally it vanished away with only its grin remaining. Well, gravity is the grin of the stellar Cheshire cat. Even though it, it itself has vanished from sight because it can neither reflect nor emit light, its gravity is still there. It still causes things to orbit. If I turn the sun into a black hole, the Earth will continue to orbit. It will just look like it's orbiting empty space. Until I notice that it isn't empty, there's a huge amount of matter there that just happens to be black in the truest sense of the word. So what we want to look for is the effects of a black hole's gravity on its surroundings. If we can find a black hole in a binary system, Newton's version of Kepler's third law tells us we can estimate its mass. So what you want to look for are things like a star that appears to be orbiting a massive unseen companion. If you see a star in a binary system, but there's only one star and it seems to be orbiting 
around the center of mass of something that you estimate from its orbital parameters to be 10 solar masses, that might be a black hole. Because it isn't emitting light, but its gravity is still there. It's still keeping its companion trapped in a bound orbit. The other thing you can do is that stars are always leaking gas. And maybe they get close enough that the tides from the black hole actually can rip some of the gas off the outer envelope of the star. Especially as stars begin to evolve and age, remember they puff up and they get very loose and fluffy. It's easy to remove the gas from their surfaces. As that gas falls into a black hole, it feels the tides. It feels the stronger gravitational force. It's a gas and it compresses. What happens when you compress a gas? It heats up. Eventually, it could heat to a million degrees Kelvin before it hits the event horizon and vanishes. Gas of a million degrees Kelvin emits a lot of x-rays. The gravitational conditions near a black hole event horizon for a black hole of, you know, sort of stellar remnant size is so extreme, we expect prodigious amounts of x-rays from gas falling in. The way I like to think of it is, x-ray emission just outside the event horizon is how a gas cloud screams as it falls down the black hole. And we can look for that, if you will, radiation scream from superheated gas falling in. Well, in fact, we can find such objects. They're called X-ray binary stars. These are very bright, very variable X-ray sources that are identified by X-ray observatory satellites. Things like the Chandra X-ray mission, the uh, XMM X-ray satellite that are currently launched above our atmosphere. X-rays don't penetrate the atmosphere, so we have to use satellites. The very first X-ray satellites that were launched, in fact, they weren't even satellites. They were actually X-ray telescopes put on top of either very high balloon flights or sounding rockets that spent a few minutes above the atmosphere before plunging back down into the ocean. One of the first things they saw was the sun. The sun is a nearby source of X-rays, but it's kind of, that's kind of cheating because the sun's right next door. They also saw a series of X-ray sources that got a number that didn't really seem to have optical counterparts in the sky. They had names like Cygnus X1, Cygnus X2, and Cygnus X3, meaning the three brightest X-ray sources in order of decreasing brightness in the constellation of Cygnus. Sco X1 is Scorpius X1. Now, eventually, people looked in these areas, got a better idea of the X-ray position, and saw, oh, yeah, we see something there. That's the galactic center black hole. Um, oh, that's a big radio galaxy or something like that. But what we see, in particular, is one particular class of X-ray sources picked up by these satellites. If I just look at the X-ray sky, there are these bright points of really strong, hard X-rays. And I point my telescope there, and I might, for example, see, oh, look, there's a blue B-type main sequence star. Let's take its spectrum. Okay, B-type main sequence star. That's cool. Wait a minute. Sometimes the lines are red-shifted. Sometimes they're blue-shifted. Sometimes they're red-shifted. Oh, look. That B-type main sequence star is in a binary star. Okay, if it's in a binary star and it's moving so fast, where's its companion? How big is its companion? Don't see a companion. The companion's invisible. There's no light. There's no spectrum from the companion. If I had two stars together in a binary, I see two mixes, two spectral types rolling back and forth, but I only see one set of lines rolling back and forth. So you measure the mass of the object. Find out it's pretty big. The other thing that can happen, again, is that gas from the visible star gets dumped onto this companion, spirals into the black hole, heating up and compressing until it reaches millions or tens of millions of degrees Kelvin, and it emits copious amounts of x-rays. So if I look at it in visible light, I just see this blue star kind of going back and forth and back and forth around the middle of nowhere. If I look at it in x-rays, 
B stars don't emit x-rays very much, so the B star vanishes and I see this bright x-ray point source blazing away, maybe very rapidly variable and flickering because the gas is being fed in at a slightly different rate. I call these objects x-ray binary stars. I use the orbital parameters from the visible light observations. I see that there is an x-ray companion there to estimate, using Newton's version of Kepler's third law, what's the mass of this thing. If the mass is really big, it becomes a candidate as a possible black hole. If the mass is one times the mass of the sun, one and a half times the mass of the sun, a good chance is it's just an old cold neutron star that I'm dumping matter on. After all, if I've got a neutron star down there with an escape surface speed of 0.7 the speed of light, and I drop a marshmallow onto it, the amount of gravitational binding energy released when that marshmallow slams against the surface would emit basically about as much energy as 10 thermonuclear weapons. Great weapon, and fortunately living on the neutron star, there's really nothing to bomb. So I can make prodigious amounts of x-rays by spattering matter onto a neutron star. But neutron stars tend to be 1.4, 1.2, maybe two times the mass of the sun. If I see something like six, eight, ten times the mass of the sun, there's no way we know of to make a stable neutron star that big. And so it becomes an obvious candidate for a black hole. This is an artist's conception about what one of these things might look like. This is actually a cartoon of an object called uh, Cygnus X1. It's the brightest X-ray source in the constellation of Cygnus the Swan. When we look there, we see this really bright blue supergiant star, not actually a main sequence. It's an evolved blue supergiant. It probably had a larger mass companion that long ago went supernova. The mass of the companion was too big. Its core collapsed through the neutron star phase straight into a black hole. They've spiraled close together. Matter is being torn off the B companion, spiraling in a little disk, and eventually falling down into the black hole, producing prodigious x-rays on the outside. If I could zoom in, what I would probably see is a black hole, probably threaded with magnetic fields throughout, so you get this fountaining effect. And this cartoon is actually to demonstrate clumpy bits of matter screaming in x-rays just before they fall down the hole. Now this is not exactly what it would look like because the strong gravity of the black hole would in fact distort and terribly mess up our view of this thing. So the artist has taken a few liberties just to make it easy to look at without twisting your eyes out. But in fact, you can actually make predictions of what kind of matter you should expect to be falling in, how hot it should be, what the pattern of temperature from hot to really hot and also predict what the time fluctuation should be as chunks fall in because it's not perfectly smooth like water draining down a sink. And in fact, Cygnus X1, when we put all the pieces together, is a very good candidate for one of these X-ray binary black holes. This is very likely to be the remnant companion of a, the other partner in the binary star was a more massive star. The more massive a star is, the faster it evolves. So it went all the way through its evolution while its companion, which was lower mass, is still getting around just into the blue supergiant phase. What's going to happen when that star goes supernova? Good question. If it's really big, it might form a binary black hole, or it might form a neutron star. And So someday I expect to find a neutron star black hole binary swirling around each other in space. But for the, not for the time being, it's now a blue supergiant. X-ray binaries with unseen companions are fairly rare. But we do see some in which the mass of the unseen companion computed from the orbital properties is in excess of three times the mass of the sun, which we right now understand to be that dividing line between neutron star and black hole. 
Some of these candidates are Cygnus X1, whose cartoon I just showed, with a mass between six and ten times the mass of the sun for the unseen companion. Uh, the mellifluously named V404 Cygni, another one of these X-ray binaries, has a mass probably bigger than six times the mass of the sun. It's hard to constrain the orbits very well. And an object in a nearby galaxy called the Large Magellanic Cloud, the third brightest X-ray source called LMC X3, has a mass estimated for the unseen companion between seven and ten times the mass of the sun. All of these are consistent with being candidates for stellar mass black holes, as we call them. Black holes that are the result of the endpoint of stellar evolution for a very massive star. But there are some provisos here. There's some caveats. So we're getting out onto the raggedy frontiers of astrophysics. None of these is as yet a really ironclad case, although I would have to say that when we first heard of Cygnus X1, there were money and beer and wine and subscription to dirty magazine bets that went all over astrophysics. Um, whether Cygnus X1 could be proven to be a... Um, to be a black hole or not. In fact, Stephen Hawking rather famously had a, uh, had a bet going with one of my old teachers at, uh, at uh, Caltech, Kip Thorne, over whether Cygnus X1 was a, uh, a black hole. And in fact, he finally paid off his bet to Kip a couple of years ago. So work is continuing. We're really studying these things in great detail. The modern X-ray satellites are turning up more of these things. It's a great area of study. In fact, a lot of my own research work is not concerned with stellar mass black holes, but with an interesting class of objects we're going to meet later in the class called supermassive black holes. Now, a little bit of a caveat towards the end. General relativity says the black holes are completely black. Nothing, go nothing that gets, goes in comes out, not even light. And they last forever. However, general relativity does not include the physics of the very small, the physics of atomic and subatomic scales called quantum mechanics. What happens if we try to bring quantum mechanics into play near a black hole? That's really hard, and it requires super smart people to do it. Luckily, one of the super smart people who's been doing that for the last few years is Stephen Hawking. A number of years ago, he did the first attempts to solve the equations of, of general relativity near quant in the quantum limit, and he found that, in fact, black holes are not black. They are slowly leaking matter. It's cold thermal radiation. Temperature, however, is about 10 nano Kelvin, so that's 10 billionths of a degree above absolute zero. And the bigger the black hole is, the colder it is. It's harder for it to leak particles. I'll spare you the details, but basically it takes a really long time for a black hole to leak matter this way. A five solar mass stellar remnant black hole takes 10 to the 73 years to evaporate. That's only 10 to the 63 times longer than the age of the universe. So Hawking radiation is not important now, but it might be really important in the distant future of the universe, and we're going to see Hawking radiation again later in the class. Right in the money. Just to be clear, okay, um, the core that's smaller than one, that's smaller than one point four, is a white dwarf. Only if it formed as a carbon oxygen white dwarf from a low mass star. I can have a one solar mass neutron star, but it was born as an iron core. Right. If it forms all the way through an iron core, I can, f I can in principle, I could form a 0.6 solar mass iron core. It's hard to do, but you could do it. Oops.